Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm excited. Are you excited? I am excited. Are you guys ready to go into the 13th floor? Yeah. Yeah. All right, get it. In Denver, Colorado, Margie Kerr and Amy Holloman are about to experience their favorite couple's activity. <laughs> Getting scared out of their minds. I see you! <laughs> that was good. Margie and Amy love haunted houses, so much so that they oriented their marriage and their careers around them. Margie is a sociologist at the University of Pittsburgh who uses her research on fear to consult on haunted houses. And Amy is a professional year-round haunter. Yeah, that's a thing. It's an industry term for people who manage and design haunted attractions. We often describe it as we're creepy perfect. Yeah, I think that something Margie and I probably are more familiar with than most people is the benefits of fear and being brave. Their shared passion for fear has led them into some pretty unusual situations. In fact, some of their most meaningful and even joyous experiences in life are the kinds of scenes that you might imagine playing out in a horror film. When I proposed to Margie, I decided it would be fun to do this like in a dark forest. (laughs) And so... We started walking on this trail. Neither of us had ever been there. I just researched the area. And as we're ascending this hill, out of nowhere, this man comes out of the darkness. And it was shocking. He didn't have a flashlight and wasn't walking a dog, just walking in the dark. Now, this was not part of the plan. Amy and Margie were completely alone deep in this spooky forest with only their flashlight to guide the way. They could see almost nothing, only this mysterious man up ahead. Now, some people at that point might have turned back and closed the experience for the night and gone home and thought that was really scary. But we kept going. They walked right up to the man, said hello, and then kept moving down the forest path. They never could figure out exactly what the man was doing there, but he left them alone, and it was no big deal. So we got to this open field, and then I got down on one knee and proposed, and she said yes. And I think that that moment of fear brought us together and made it more meaningful. See, the thing is, we often think of fear as unpleasant. It's wrapped up with danger, pain, maybe even death. So why then are people like Margie and Amy so attracted to it, building their careers, even their marriage, around moments of real terror? Now, I got to say something. It's not just Margie and Amy. I personally really like fear as well. Not a lot of people know this about me, but Halloween is kind of my favorite holiday. In fact, one of the things I get a ton of joy from is coming up with new ways 
to scare my wife and my three daughters. Sometimes I'll crouch down in a corner of our kitchen when they're not looking and then jump out screaming. I don't know why I do it, but I just kind of love it. And interestingly, they do as well. I'll spend days, even weeks before Halloween, designing a spooky forest in our front yard, complete with ghosts and goblins and surprises. I also like being scared myself. I like horror films. I like roller coasters. You name it. I can't get enough of that adrenaline kick from a good scare. And it left me wondering, why do I love this feeling so much? Why do so many people like being scared? So on today's episode, we're going to get up close and personal with fear. And we're going to do it by going on a journey inside the human brain. We're also going to go behind the scenes of a haunted house to find out what it takes to hit that fear joy sweet spot and how reframing our thinking of fear might improve our lives and maybe even help us overcome some of our greatest worries. So light up the jack-o'-lanterns, hop on your broomstick, and get ready to shriek. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and it's time to start chasing life. You know, a few weeks ago, we put out a request on CNN's Instagram for people to call in and tell us about the things that scare them most. We got a ton of replies on this, and I got to say, people are afraid of a pretty surprising and varied set of things. It's kind of weird and random, but I am afraid of a face in the window. Like if somebody I know, a loved one, walks outside and looks in the window... It freaks me out. Yeah, I'm calling about what scares me the most, and that would be mice. What scares me the most is becoming known as the person who is late to everything. Demon girls and white dress and long black hair. Being alone in the dark. Witches. Birds. Like, I can feel my blood turn cold. One thing we notice is that everyone who called in clearly had experienced fear and they could specifically label certain things as scary. But when our team set out to define fear, this thing that seemed really intuitive and obvious, well, we quickly realized we had a problem because there is a fierce debate in science over what exactly fear is. Think about it. Is fear a specific physical reaction? Like how fast our heart beats? Or the pitch of a scream? Or maybe is it more psychological, like an overwhelming sense of uncertainty or revulsion? Ew! I really wanted to understand it better, so I turned to an expert, a neuroscientist, who, fittingly, is also a big fan of Halloween. We always give out, like, full-size candy bars. You know, we're very competitive about Halloween. We want to be the best in the neighborhood, so... Lisa Feldman Barrett is a professor of psychology at Northeastern University. In academic circles, she's best known for her research on emotion and the brain. But her neighbors in Newton, Massachusetts, they know her for the haunted house she ran out of her basement for over a decade with the help of her grad students. It was a really big event. Not to brag, but, you know, we're really good at scaring people, right? (laughs) Now, the main reason I wanted to talk to Professor Barrett is because she's pioneered a new theory for understanding emotion. She believes that the way we talk about fear, the way that we cope with it, and even many of the most basic things we assume about it are simply wrong. To truly understand fear, Professor Barrett thinks we need to take a look at what's happening under the hood, 
to understand what is going on inside the brain when you tell yourself, I feel scared. Your brain's most important job is not thinking or feeling or even seeing. It's coordinating all the systems of your body. And it's doing that 24-7, largely without any awareness from you. You know, your brain doesn't make itself aware of all of the coordinating it's doing. And your body is sending back sense data to your brain, you know, about contractions and squishes and, you know, all the little movements that are happening inside your body. But how your brain makes itself aware of that drama is by these simple feelings of uh, affect or mood, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling comfortable, uncomfortable, worked up, calm. These simple feelings are with you always. They're not emotions. In order for them to become emotions, your brain has to do some extra work. Emotions are the story that your brain tells itself that link these simple feelings and the sense data that they come from to what's going on around you in the world. But in order for that to happen, your brain has to kind of guess at what the causes are of those changes, and those guesses are our emotions. This is really a different way of thinking about emotion than we're used to. The kind of old, classic view of emotion is that it's this thing that gets triggered in response to a situation. When we're in danger, the theory goes, a circuit is triggered to make us feel fear. But Professor Barrett is saying, no, no, and no. There's no circuits. There's no triggering. She says there's not even a concrete thing called emotion. According to her, fear is actually our own invention. It's a way of coming up with an explanation for all these bodily sensations, the sweaty palms, the elevated heart rate, the tightening in the chest, or even just the vague physical discomfort. And once we tune into those sensations, we can start to understand why people can have such a different reaction to the same situation. Take my kids, for example. One of my three daughters would have begged me to take her to Professor Barrett's haunted house every year if we lived in Massachusetts. But another one would have never stepped foot in it. If you feel unpleasant fear when you are at a haunted house, that's really a sign that your brain is probably not managing your body particularly efficiently in that moment. And it's the unpleasantness scientists think that would lead you not to come back the next time. <laughs> Whereas if your brain is managing things efficiently, then it's going to feel like fun fear, you know, like pleasant fear, like exhilarating fear. And then you're more likely to do it again. Well, I mean, you know, I, that, that makes perfect sense. I will tell you that for one of my daughters who doesn't like these things, She's really fearful that she's going to be injured, that she will be hurt somehow, that she may die as a result of what's going on. They'll come out. One child is laughing, you know, just totally thrilled. And the other one is kind of pale and, you know, clearly not something I would do to her again. What does that mean, do you think? I'm going to take one step back before I answer your question to sort of say also that when your brain is making sense of what's going on in, inside your body in relation to the world, what it's doing is it's generating guesses, predictions, mm -hmm. actually, about what mm -hmm. the cause might be. So it makes a guess based on past experience right. about what it thinks is going to happen next. And so 
that experience can be things that have happened to you personally, or it can be things you've read about, or things that you've heard on television, or things people have told you. And so what's happening for your daughter is, for whatever reason, when she's in a particular physical state, her brain is generating images and, and thoughts that are unpleasant. And why that's happening is really hard to say. It really has to do with, you know, many factors, but one of which is, what is your brain predicting? What are the past experiences or past knowledge that your brain goes to to prepare your next set of actions and the experiences that you have as a consequence? That's really what is going to determine how risk-averse versus how embracing of uncertainty and risk you are. This is such a fascinating conversation. What are some of the myths that you think we've been led to believe about fear that you think we should revise? You've already talked about this a bit, but what are some of the other myths that we've been led to believe about fear? So the idea that fear is a biological state or that it can be defined as a psychological feeling, that it's one or the other, that's a myth. Every waking moment of your life, you're in events that always have a biological basis and they always have psychological features. It's not one or the other. Another myth Professor Barrett takes issue with is this idea that fear is innate, that all animals somehow have this deep inner fear circuit that somehow gets triggered when we're in danger. For example, imagine you're on a hike and a snake jumps out at you on the trail. Just about everyone's going to jerk back and be startled, right? And you might think, well, that's got to be proof that there is some evolved circuit in the brain for fear. But Professor Barrett says that's not the full story. That's only true if you define fear as freezing, running away. I mean, in Bali, the stereotypic thing you do in fear is you fall asleep. Now, to a Westerner, you look at that and you go, what is that? Well, what that is, is it's called defensive brachycardia, which means it's defensive slowing of the heart. And where do you see that? You see it in the ocean, where we evolved, by the way, right? So, you know, when a shark is swimming by, what does an animal do to defend itself? It stops moving and it slows its heart rate because, because a shark can detect heartbeats. And so it's a defensive response in the face of a predator. But we don't say, oh, look, that person just fell asleep in the, you know, instead of running away. So that person must be totally afraid, <laughs> right? But the important thing to understand here is that no action, no physical change is inherently any emotion. Your brain is constantly making sense of your actions and the physical state of your body in relation to the world. And you have more flexibility in how to do that than you might realize. Professor Barrett says we've been taught to recognize and label different emotions. That is how our brain makes sense of those different bodily feelings. So again, if you've got sweaty palms and you've got butterflies in your stomach, okay, this is anxiety. If your eyes are watering and you feel a pit in your stomach, okay, this is sadness. But here's the thing. Professor Barrett says we don't have to stick to those interpretations. We can actually change them. We can change how we interpret those bodily sensations. This is really important because if you do it, you can even change the way that you experience the world. Take anxiety, for example, like when you're about to take a major exam. So test anxiety 
It's not just, ooh, feeling jitters at taking a test. Chest anxiety is a debilitating condition where people are unable, basically, to complete tests because they are so worked up and their brain is making sense of their physical state as anxiety. That's not the only way you can make sense of such a physical state, though. You can teach people to make sense of those physical changes in a different way, as exhilaration, as determination, as your brain preparing you for battle, man, for battle. You need that pounding heart. You need that arousal right before a big challenge. So you don't want to calm down. You want to understand that your brain's preparing you for battle. And when you teach people this and they learn it, first, it's effortful learning. It's like exercise. It's an investment. But then eventually, you know, your brain rewires itself to this knowledge. It becomes available automatically for making predictions. And poof, after some period of time, these people pass tests, they get their degrees, and it's changed their entire lives. I think that's that's such an important point. This idea, I mean, and it's empowering, I think, as well, that you could teach yourself to experience this differently. If if fear is thought of as as unpleasant in any way, you've described it, I believe, as unpleasant arousal, then why do people seek out your haunted house or horror film, things that might be designed to trigger that? There are two immediate answers I can give you. One is that not all instances of fear are unpleasant. <laughs> Some of them are fun. But when it is unpleasant, why do it again? And the answer is because you master it. Why do you learn to play the piano? It's miserable to learn a skill sometimes because you have to practice over and over and over again, practicing the same thing to get faster and quicker. Why are you doing it? You're doing it because you know that you're going to be able to master it. And then you can do it very automatically with very little effort. So, you know, practicing fear, even unpleasant fear, is another example of doing the same thing. Stick around, because after the break, we're going to take a look at what mastering fear can actually look like. Join us as we head to one of the spookiest haunted houses in Denver, Colorado. And now, back to Chasing Life. (laughs) When it comes to mastering fear, there's almost no better place to look than a haunted house. I know that might sound silly. After all, haunted houses are a far cry from our normal lives. Getting chased by a clown with a knife is certainly not meant to be a relatable experience outside of Halloween. But here's the thing. Just like understanding what's going on in the brain can help us reframe how we experience fear, also understanding what makes us so scared in a haunted house, what makes us so vulnerable to panic, might help us prepare ourselves to confront fear in other parts of our lives. It is impossible to avoid stress and fear and pain, and I think a lot of us like to believe that it would be possible to avoid all negative things, but it's not. And so I think that by engaging with them on your own terms, it can give people a sense of confidence to, you know, go out and face them in the real world. That's Margie Kerrigan, the sociologist who uses research on fear to consult on haunted houses. And to break down what makes a haunted house so scary, 
Margie and her wife Amy offered to take us through one. Actually, they went to a haunted house that Amy manages, where there's one attraction in particular that they work together to design. They call it sensory overload. Just remember, guys, no running, no flashlights. Have a great night. All right, sounds good. Here we go. Oh, wow, this is very new. Blindly from the beginning. So in the middle of the sensory overload, there is a, a strobe light, and it works really well to keep people's eyes from readjusting to the darkness and to further disorient people in space so they don't know, you know, which way is up or down or forward or back. Right now, I don't know where I'm going. Oh, jeez. This is ingredient number one, disorientation. Margie says it's an essential component of an effective scare. I'm right behind you. Okay. My favorite thing about designing scares is thinking about how, you know, how surprising it can be when you're, you experience something sensory in a totally out of context or unpredictable way. So making the floors uneven so that your balance is thrown off. And again, it's it's pitch black, so you can't see. And now you're on uh, flooring that is, you know, twisting this way and that. Tilted floor. Down, down. Nope, nope, still going. And by the way, this kind of disorientation, it doesn't have to be unpleasant to work. Amy says it can even be playful. There was one year Margie recommended they make a room in the haunted house smell like strawberries. So we use a strawberry fog scent, and you hear people about halfway through the attraction saying, like, does this smell like strawberries or cherries or something in here? And it's just, it puts a person in a place where they're sort of confused, but again, more susceptible to be startled. Once you've got the disorientation down, you can focus on the three core components of a haunted house. This is what Amy calls the fright triangle. One of the points is going to be your story. So why are you in this setting? Why are there vampires and werewolves that are battling one another in these city streets? Who am I in this story? How do I get out of here? Yes, I'm going to tear you up. And make a meal out of it! <laughs> Another core element of the triangle is spectacle. Ball pit. How many balls do you think are in here? Things that are of larger-than-life scale. Things that you had never seen before. A pumpkin man with three jack-o'-lantern heads. A giant who's 15 feet tall chasing you. A world that all of a sudden you find a mansion in the middle of this warehouse and it's snowing. Things that are spectacular and really strike awe. And the third is the scare. It's the startle, it's intimidation, it's the thrill, it's the moments that make you jump. So that can be done with a simple air cannon. It can be an actor who pops out of nowhere and scares you. Of course, to make the scares and the spectacle and the moments of storytelling all work, Margie explains, you've got to get the timing right. 
You don't want to overwhelm people's senses right away so that for the second half of a show, they're basically just, you know, in zombie mode because their startle response and their, you know, sympathetic nervous system has just been kind of taken to the extreme and now is done. So really thinking about balancing it in a way that your senses can handle, but pushes it a little bit more. So much goes into making an effective haunted house. I'd never really thought about it that much. Amy says it's not uncommon to spend a full year working out the design and execution. But once everything is set and the doors finally open to the public, for Amy, there is this deep sense of pride. I feel like every guest who comes to my haunted house, I'm giving them a gift. You know, it is my job in customer service to deliver on them being scared. But also, I want them to forget about their worries of paying the bills, picking up the kids from school, taking care of grandma, whatever it is, I want to give them an experience for for just an hour they can totally be immersed in this fantasy world where they know they're safe, but they're going to push themselves a little harder than usual and see what happens. Visiting a haunted house, they say, might even have some health benefits. According to Margie, some of those benefits are comparable to exercise. The brainwave activity is similar to people who are doing marathon runs, so that runner's high. So essentially, you're not thinking, you're not really critically analyzing anything. You just are are present in the moment, and that's related to feeling good. It's nice to check out of our inner dialogue from time to time. There are also pro-social benefits. You know that classic advice that scary movies make for good first dates? Well, there might be some truth to it. Fear can be such a bonding experience, and we can support each other so much, and our friend can help us work through an especially intense scare. So if you know, you're know you screaming and you're feeling like, oh my gosh, I've had enough, but you see your friend is laughing, that can help you kind of transition from the scream into the laugh. And once you make it out the other side of the haunted house, many people report a big boost in self-confidence. With the anchor of knowing that it is fake and that you will be okay, you can experience it, get all of the benefits of survival without actually facing any of the real threats to survival. And, and that feels good. It feels kind of like you've you know cheated death and you've <laughs> overcome and bravely kind of pushed through. As Amy and Margie say, fear can be hugely beneficial. And if you're someone who is still on the fence about haunted houses, Amy and Margie have a few tips to maybe make that experience more enjoyable. I'd say instead of ruminating on that fear, let's gamify your approach. So let's say if you had to go on a scary Scooby-Doo mystery trip, who would be the five friends that you would bring with you? And then think about those five people and like, okay, I know I would take John because he's strong and I would take Kelly because she's smart. And then call up those people and say, let's go to this haunted house. And I think kind of being playful with it is going to take away a lot of that anxiety and then also grounding yourself around people who you know, love and trust is going to make that a better experience, you know? Yeah, approaching it with that open adventurous perspective, it does give you the freedom to just be there and not put too much on it or yourself. 
I like to say, do something that scares you every day. So get out there. Enjoy the fear if you can. And I wish all of you a very happy Halloween. We'll be back Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gaspare, Audrey Horwitz, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our intern is Eduardo Ocampo. Our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.